This is The Big Jump, a podcast about human reinvention, featuring pro athletes who have leveraged their athletic minds for success beyond sports. I'm your host, David Gardner, a professional basketball player turned CEO of branding firm Color Jar. Well, hello there. This is the kickoff for season two of The Big Jump. I am your host, David Gardner, and in each episode, I sit down with a professional athlete who has made a big jump to create success beyond sports. And I'm so excited to build off the success of season one, starting off season two with this episode featuring my friend, Paul Shirley. Paul began his writing career playing in the NBA for the league best Phoenix Suns, writing on their blog about his experience on the team as it unfolded throughout the 2004-2005 season. In 2018, we often see players giving fans a behind-the-scenes account in real time. And in the pre-social media world that Paul was writing during, it was unheard of. And Paul may have been the first to do it. In doing so, he helped pave the way for players to share more of themselves and their experience, thoughts, and ideas directly with fans. That Phoenix Suns blog led to his first book deal, Can I Keep My Jersey?, which was then adapted and made into a TV pilot, all of this while playing pro basketball. Like many trailblazers, Paul took a few proverbial arrows for being the first one over the hill on the front. And you'll hear why Paul believes his dual identity as a player-slash-writer, likely hurt his decade-long pro basketball career. But ultimately, being the first to do it also launched his pro writing career, which has included writing for Slate, The Wall Street Journal, and Esquire, in addition to the books he's authored. You'll hear Paul's insane roller coaster of a basketball career, playing for about a dozen rosters between the NBA and teams overseas, from training camps with Kobe and Shaq to playing in Siberia and beyond, more of which he chronicles in his latest book, Stories I Tell on Dates, which has now been adapted into a podcast with a really cool full soundscape of audio effects that audibly bring his stories to life. I'm a huge fan and you should definitely check it out. And while Paul has had a lot of success and highlights, he's also seen a share of failures and is very open in this episode about his lowlights as well. You'll hear about his identity struggle after his basketball career ended and what he's worked on in therapy. You'll hear about the negative effects of the pressure he's put on himself and his battle with feeling not quite good enough. And you'll also hear how a book he worked on for three years failed to be published, which ultimately spurred him to bring the discipline and teamwork of his athletic past to the world of writing by founding the Writer's Boot Camp Writer's Block in Los Angeles, a co-working space that brings the accountability and sense of community usually found in the gym or a yoga studio to the practice of writing. You can learn more about that at writersblok.org. And while you're at it finding things online, give The Big Jump a holler on Instagram or Twitter, at Big Jump Show. On the podcast charts, season one netted a perfect five-star rating for The Big Jump. And if you're so inclined, I would be grateful if you could show some love by throwing us five stars. And if this is your first episode, don't forget to subscribe. And show notes, get your show notes here. If you're listening while driving or are sharpening knives underwater, show notes for this episode and links to everything mentioned can be found at thebigjumpshow.com. Also, when I need a change of pace from podcasts, I love listening to audiobooks on Audible. After hearing this episode, I have a feeling that you're going to want to listen to Paul Shirley's latest book, Stories I Tell on Dates. So I've partnered up with Audible to give new customers a free audiobook. Just go to thebigjumpshow.com slash audiobook to get Paul Shirley's new book for free, or choose from one of Audible's other 180,000 titles. Sorry, Paul. 
Again, to start off your Audible account with a free audiobook, go to thebigjumpshow.com slash audiobook. And lastly, I want to say thank you to our sponsor, Grand Voyage, a luxury fashion brand and a personal favorite of mine that makes shoes and bags designed in LA and handcrafted in Italy at the same factories as other premier fashion labels, but at a much better value. GQ says they're, quote, changing the fashion game. And Grand Voyage is perfect if you're trying to change up your fashion game. And by change up, I do mean upgrade. Use the promo code THEBIGJUMP for $35 off the beautiful bags and shoes from Grand Voyage. Yes, $35 off. Go check them out. See what I mean by going to thebigjumpshow.com slash shoes. And from there, as they say, the rest is up to you. And with that, sit back and enjoy my inspiring interview with the intelligent, the witty, the vulnerable, Paul Shirley. All right. All right. Paul Shirley. What's up? Thanks for being on the big jump. Uh, thanks for having me. Thanks for telling me the name. I didn't know it was the big jump until just now. <laughs> oh, good. I guess that reveals that uh, mm-hmm. we were friends before this podcast. Right. <laughs> <laughs> what? Uh, so the big jump refers to the transition. Okay. Yeah. Um, so how people make a big jump from being kind of one way in life and right. to whatever's next. So for you know the case of you, how did you go from being a pro basketball player to a pro writer. Mm -hmm. And we'll certainly get into that. But really where I want to start our conversation today is what's your earliest memory playing sports? I think it is my uncle offering me $5 if I hit a home run in a peewee baseball game. And then me swinging wildly and being very bad because of that incentive and completely failing to not only hit a home run, but even get a hit and learning the lesson that like, I guess early on that like, if you, if you try to do something for the external reward and it probably won't, won't work out very well. Was baseball your, your first love? Yeah, for sure. Like if you had asked me when I was 11, I would have said for sure, I will play major league baseball. And I've been thinking a lot lately about how I could kind of tell pretty early, like I had this natural ability and or coordination for sports in general. And so early on that manifested in baseball, but then I started to put together like, well, I think I can sense as I got to be like 13, 14, 15 years old, like basketball is, I'm just a little better at that. I was really small at age 14 or 15. And so that meant that I had to learn how to play point guard. I was not, I wouldn't, you would never have thought like he's going to grow up to be six foot nine and weigh 230 pounds. Like I was 5'11 hmm. when I was 14 years old. And so I, I think it's interesting how people don't give kids enough credit for their own like intelligence, not only body intelligence, but just sort of like pragmatism that we realized probably, I don't know if this is true for you, but I realized like, oh, this basketball thing seems to work. I seem, I, I can see where this is going and it's going to be pretty good. And it was almost independent of the growing. Like that just kind of just happened on its own. And I got lucky that I was tall. But some of that wasn't just luck. It was also like understanding this is my, that that is a path that seems like it's going to be successful. One of the things I learned about you is how many different activities you were involved with square dancing, science camp, and, right. and state finals and for a spelling, spelling bee. bee. Yeah, like I was uh, way, way into spelling. And, uh, and the list of things though, this does not sound like the identity of a budding athlete. Well, I think, I mean, I, I think we just forget how much time is available if you didn't have phones, television, the internet, right? Like we had a lot more time back then because we weren't consumed by 
these devices. Yeah. Right. Don't you think? I mean, I think that's part of it. I think that's part of it. As I think about like what we did, we would, we would also, you know, spend days just playing outside. Right. Or just reading. Like I just read constantly as a kid. I read a lot more as a kid than I do even now because my time is taken up by Instagram, which is stupid. That's still not a good use of my time. But back then, that, that's what we knew, right? And we grew up in the country and I grew up, my dad did his uh, PhD thesis on the effects of uh, television on children. At, he was actually at Stanford doing postdoc work when I was born. So like we didn't watch a lot of TV. We read a lot. We had early bedtimes. All of the things that if I were a parent, I would probably do, but which at the time made me feel like a complete wacko. Because, you know, you're in this small town. Right. Everybody else is just watching Roseanne or whatever. And you're like, well, I got to, you know, practice the piano and do my 40 push-ups before I go to sleep. <laughs> so it's very, it sounds like a, a structured, productive household where you were really uh, indulging in like a wide array of, of interests. Um, yeah. And I think that like is a, a credit to my parents because in thinking about how much time that it must have taken to get us to all of those things and just like put themselves aside so that they could get us to track practice or whatever it might have been. Like I can remember being a page in the state Senate when I was in like 10th grade or something. And that wasn't because something I generated. It was my mom, you know, sent in to find out if that was a thing. Right. And you grew up in a, a small town in Kansas. Right. How are your parents insofar as relating to you as a young athlete? They didn't know a lot about that world, which was, I think, a real boon to my career. How so? Well, because I think like they saw it as this is a fun way for Paul and his brothers to become well-rounded, but they didn't see it as the all to end all because there's this tendency to think like, well, I got sp- my kids got to specialize young, which is just wrong. I think it was really helpful that my parents didn't know the stakes or didn't really care about their kids playing college sports. It was more just, oh, well, this is going to add to their general life satisfaction. So they were generally supportive but more or less treated sports as one of the other myriad extracurricular activities you... Yeah, especially yeah. when we were young. I think, I think that's where, it, where that matters the most in that they just saw it as like, well, yeah, you're going to go play baseball and then you'll play flag football and then you'll, you know, you'll try out all of these things. I recently got to learn a lot more about you because I um, consumed your latest book, uh, Stories I Tell on Dates. Oh, thank you. Uh, which I really enjoyed uh, immensely. We have so many shared experiences. Obviously, we've lived different lives, but so many of these scenes were like mm-hmm. you know, evoked from my own memory. Uh, but with the luxury of, you know, these raw scenes being scored by your excellent words and almost like re-encoding them. And now they're <laughs> like my own stuff felt more vibrant and, oh, nice. and so uh, get you to get you to write an Amazon review. <laughs> well put. <laughs> so thanks. Uh, happy to. And so thanks for that experience. You came across in stories I tell on dates as a very earnest, heartfelt young man. Mm-hmm. Um and almost this kind of nerdy intellectual side seemed like it was shining more brightly than even the athletic side. Mm-hmm. Was your identity as an athlete something that you think you had to construct a little more manually, whereas some of the more academic stuff came more naturally? Or how do you think about your identity as an athlete? Like, how did that come to be built? Well, uh, yeah, I, that's a, a good 
question in that I don't think people talk about that enough. Um, I don't know how you felt, but I always felt like when I was on the court, I could behave completely differently from when I was off the court. So I could off the court, be very polite and be the spelling bee champion who was afraid of girls or whatever the case was. And then on the court, I could just like go full Mr. Hyde. And like, I, I led my high school basketball team in technicals by like a really wide margin. And I would, I can remember in seventh grade, we were awful and the cheerleading team would do this like we are proud of you song when you would lose hmm. and like <laughs> even in seventh grade it was this tiny skinny kid coming off the court just screaming at me like, stop saying that you're not proud of us we're terrible <laughs> <laughs> yelling at the top of my lungs right yes. uh and i think that's one of the beautiful things about sports is that it allows that more bestial side to come out and that's something i really loved was and it, it's something i miss too just the fact that you can engage in something that's completely contrary to your day-to-day life and is a little closer to the animal side. I think that's one of the things that I truly love that's also really hard to explain to people because they think, well, you must have loved like the adulation and Mm. just being kind of treated really well. Mm. And that I think is kind of nice. But I think what you really love is, is once you get between those lines or on the field or wherever it is, you can just change into whatever you want to be. There's a permission, mm-hmm. you know, and, and a structure set up where it's not only allowed, but encouraged to have that sort of base right. primal, yeah, yeah. you know, animal unleashed. Mm-hmm. And so it also sounds as though it may have been an outlet for you. Whereas in the rest of your life, the expectation was to be the, the earnest, polite, mm-hmm. well-behaved and a Midwestern small town boy. Right. Yeah. And I think that's one thing that will be, I hate to say interesting because I just I banned that word from my classroom, but it will be interesting to see how like teenage boys do as we get rid of football. Like football is going to probably go away in the next 20 years, especially for like middle class and upper class people because they'll just be like, my kids are not doing that. But I think those things are really useful and helpful for channeling some of that energy that otherwise is going to go into like getting people pregnant and committing crimes. <laughs> well, clearly, clearly you stayed away from teen pregnancies and, right. and jail Yeah, yeah. Uh, to your credit. And you were able to channel a lot of that into basketball mm-hmm. and it paid off for you. Around what age did that path start to make itself clear to you where you could see that the future was basketball? I think as we got older, especially with my dad, as fathers will do, um, as my dad could see like, oh, Paul's got a chance to be really good. Then he really started to turn the screws a little bit. Mm. He was prone to that anyway. Like that's part of why I found basketball was that he was the baseball guy and basketball became my rebellion. And it was something I could do by myself. I didn't have to like mm. deal with our father yelling at us like, don't step in the bucket, <laughs> all of that, uh, which was not, he wasn't like a, it, he wasn't whatever Tiger Woods's dad or something, but he got pretty into, yeah, you know, turn the, turn the screws. Yeah. He could see like, if you're, if you pay attention to this, you could be pretty good. And I think his way of cultivating that was to be pretty hard on us. Mm. Well, what did that look like? So the, the, thing I will always, what I always come back to when it comes to explaining my dad's expectations of me and my brothers, I suppose, was the first time I ever scored 30 points in a high school basketball game, which you can remember, like that's when you do that, especially if like, you know, you haven't, you're, you weren't 
necessarily that gifted as a seventh and eighth grader or ninth grader. And then suddenly you're like a junior and you're pretty good. Scoring 30, especially in a high school game, is kind of a big deal. And I remember afterward, my dad saying, don't get ahead of yourself because you should have had 40. Mm. And that kind of is like emblematic of his response <laughs> to my to all of my achievements, I suppose. How did that feel for you as you know a, a younger kid? Well, I, I don't think you you know how it feels until you have time to unpack it later, right? I think it has taken. I like I've done a lot of therapy, and a lot of what we talk about. Not it, anytime you get into the parental thing, I think it always goes back to these like really high expectations, which are a double edged sword, right? Like it's a really successful way to be, but it can also tear you up if you're just constantly like feeling like I'm not quite good enough. So take us through kind of sequentially mm-hmm. this career of yours as kind of a journeyman career or a globetrotter. Well, not in the basketball sense of globetrotter, yeah. but right, right. you know, do you remember the sequence of teams? Uh, I could probably put it roughly. Together. Yeah, it's, it's a little rough. Uh, I can give you the very speed version of it, um, which is after my senior year of college, we had been very good at Iowa State. Uh, I was like, oh, one of those guys where maybe we'll draft him in the second round, maybe not. So I, I didn't get drafted. I went to summer camp with the Cleveland Cavaliers and that went a little better than people expected. So that turned into a training camp invite with the LA Lakers of like Shaquille O'Neal and Kobe Bryant and Phil Jackson. They cut me as soon as they could cut me. Uh, I went to Greece for the remainder of that year. The next year I went to training camp with the Atlanta Hawks after playing summer league, the NBA's summer league, which is kind of, as you know, tryout for free agents and rookies. Um, the next year was at training camp with the Atlanta Hawks. That time I got all the way to the day before opening day and got cut. So I was making progress as far as the NBA was concerned. That year, decided to go to Yakima, Washington to play for the CBA's Yakima Sun Kings because it looked like, oh, if you stick around in the US, you might get called up. And then sure enough, I did in January of that year, get called up by the Atlanta Hawks, signed a 10-day contract, got sent away again when Ira Newble got hurt and they needed a guard instead of me. At that point, went to Spain for four months to kind of like finance the NBA dream because I knew I could take like a paycheck and rely on that. The next year was, oh, I actually got really hurt in Spain and blew out the brachial plexus nerve in my right shoulder, which mm. like I, that kind of set me back. Next year was training camp with the New Orleans Hornets. Again, did better than I kind of had expected to. Played in, for the Kansas City Knights of the ABA. Then got called up by the Chicago Bulls, signed a 10-day and another 10-day, and then uh, had to be signed to the end of the year because I got really, really hurt, had my kidney and spleen ruptured while playing in a game, um, and almost died on an airplane from Indianapolis back to Chicago. But felt like, well, you know, now I'm actually, I can tell I'm good enough to play in the NBA because I'd been playing quite a, quite a bit for a, you know, a guy who they had signed late in the year. So kind of knew, like, I think this could work, except now I'm bedridden. <laughs> That summer changed the way I played completely and the way I looked at life just because I had almost died. The next fall, went to training camp with the Phoenix Suns, made that team, then got cut. Went to Russia, came back from Russia after hating Russia, signed again with the Suns, which was the Suns of Steve Nash, like best record in the NBA. Wrote a blog that turned into a book deal. The next year, went moved to LA to make a TV pilot, played for a Chinese team that was headquartered in Los Angeles because it had gotten kicked out of the league in China. 
made the TV pilot. Next summer, next year, go to training camp with the Minnesota Timberwolves, find out my knees are screwed, have two surgeries on my knees, end up in Menorca, Spain, where I break my ankle, but also do pretty well and keep the team in the first division, sign back to Menorca the following year. Uh, we're getting to the end, I promise. Uh, and then the following year, after like one more ankle surgery, signed on the with the best team I'd ever played for in Europe, Unicaja Malaga, for like a month. And that ended up being my last team, although I called myself a pro for another year or so because I was still training and thought I was going to go to Italy or something. Because as, as you know, it never winds down quite like you think. Like you think there's going to be some press conference where you say, hey, I, Paul Shirley, have retired from basketball. But the <laughs> truth is that the offers just don't come in like they used to. And then you're 32 and you're done. Wow. I mean, I take it back. That's not a that's not a journey. That's a roller coaster. Yeah, it was a real ride. And that I mean, I was lucky. People sometimes are like, Well, how could you have enough material for two memoirs? I'll be like, Well, <laughs> let me tell you. <laughs> what fueled you through that? Because just the amount of adversity packed into, you know, what you were just uh, able to to rattle off. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot in those moments. You know, you could dissect one of those moments of the disappointment of when a 10 day contract mm-hmm. after you'd just been under the NBA lights ended, and, right. and on and on. Let alone near death injuries and so forth. What kept you pushing forward in all that? Well, I I, th- I think I took a couple of big breaks that helped in that like that year that I moved to LA to make a TV pilot based on my first book was a little bit of a reaction to everything that had happened before that. And then I was kind of like, I can't do this anymore. Like, I don't, I don't think this is going to work. But I think I, I needed that because of some of those things that had happened, the major injuries, um, and also just the loneliness of being on my own and also having to, the, I think a psychologist would call it self-soothe, like being able to say like, okay, everything seems to be crashing down around me, but let's break this down into manageable pieces. I'm going to put on some music and I'm, that's going to get me through the next five minutes. And then I'm going to feel a little bit better. And then I'm going to go for a walk and then I'm going to get some food. And then I, you know, like working your way back through it, which again, I think is, is a credit to the importance of youth athletics and some of this well-rounded stuff we talked about before in that I was able to rely on, I know I have this routine. It has worked before. I have this faith in myself that this is going to work out and that it has proved to be mostly correct before. I think that we, we talk about faith with regard to religion, but there's a sense of like self-faith that's mm, required. Self-reliance. So in all of yeah. this turmoil or, you know, uh, incredible number of different teams and geographies and so forth, you mm-hmm. most surely are the constant. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Knowing that and like it's it is it's just fascinating how many things could have gone differently in anyone's life life right and i think there were many spots where if things just didn't they 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 shook out the right way and i probably got really lucky and so now it's easy to look back at my career and create a linear path when in reality it was very disjointed and it could have like come apart at any time um mm. i I told a story, I wrote a story in the book about how close I was to leaving Iowa State at one point and then got hurt, had my, like had a staph infection in my elbow. And that sort of precluded any further illusion that I might transfer to Kansas or Kansas State and ended up back 
at Iowa State for an Elite Eight team that won back-to-back Big 12 championships. And like that probably facilitated my professional career. All because I got hurt, didn't transfer. When at the time, I'm sure I would have been like, well, this is terrible that I'm injured now. So I, th- I think it's just, it's there's so much luck involved. There's so many other ways it could have gone that I think we all have to resist the temptation to think like, well, it's because I'm a genius and a god and that's why it worked. <laughs> right. And also, uh, I think for me, it's been a bit of a process of letting go to the idea that there's a right path and a wrong path. Yeah. And putting a lot of pressure on myself about mm-hmm. which which one of these decisions will make my life the incremental 10% better or perceived 100% better. I think that we all, again, because we like to reverse engineer or sort of retroactively apply a story to things, it's really tempting to think... This is this is the moment when this, everything changes because you know how it is. Like you're, especially as a pro, you're debating like, well, do I take this job in Gdansk, Poland, for two hundred and fifty thousand dollars that was like theoretically guaranteed, but removes me from the NBA picture and maybe like sort of submarines my career, or do I, you know, or do I stay here and play for seven hundred dollars a week in Yakima, Washington? But it's easy to look back and say, because you can see all the steps in your rearview mirror, to think like, well, of course that was the next thing that happened and then that happened. That's just not true. You just have to put yourself in a position where both of the decisions are good ones in that like maybe one would have taken you down a different path, but like the difference is 2% or something. Right. It's not a decision of like, there are there's some decisions that could that are good ones the, the options are either good or bad. Should I sell this kilo of heroin on the street? <laughs> like that's a bad move, no matter what. <laughs> so the good move is don't do that, right? And that's a very big gap. Whereas like, should I take this offer to play in Gdansk, which is a good thing? Or should I stay here and pursue the NBA dream, which is also a good thing? It's really just a good versus good. And probably they're both going to be fine. And I think for a lot of people who are type A driven folks listening mm-hmm. to this podcast, hopefully the decisions are most often good versus good. And yeah. so that sort of acceptance of the paths that while we do tend to tell a story about how the past decisions unfolded and why it was such a great, brilliant move, mm-hmm. that does almost put a pressure on the next fork in the road. Yeah, I think that's um, true. In an unnecessary way. Right. I think we are all, because we do love the story of, well, that three-pointer that guy made or that home run he hit or that uh, presentation he gave was what launched his career. Uh, is that really true though? I mean, we like that story, but I don't know if it's true. So speaking of origin stories and, and where things began, how did road ramblings uh, the, uh, begin? Phoenix Suns blog, yeah. Uh, it, be, it started because uh, I was in Phoenix. I had just gotten back from Russia um, the, the Phoenix Suns team that I played for was a really fun team. This is the 05 team? Yeah, it was, uh, yeah, 04, 05. So the year before, they had been really bad. Mike D'Antoni had come in, I think, middle of the previous year. They had signed Steve Nash, who at the time, everybody's like, well, he might be too old now. His back's a little screwed up. Little did they know he was going to be another decade MVP <laughs> two years in a row. And so I think in that, they were in of that, that mindset of just like, let's have fun with this. And a couple of people in the web department came to me and said, would you be willing to write a blog for us? This again was 2004, 2005 when a blog was still kind of new. 
And I think they asked me because I was a coherent kid at the end of the bench who had a college degree and they thought I would just like jot down some notes. They didn't know that I'd been writing about my career for three years already and sending out these email updates to people as a sort of proto blog. And that was weirdly, that was one of those moments in life where I was like, this is my opportunity because I had always known I wanted to write a book about my career. I thought I would just wait till my career was over. Mm-hmm. Um, but that felt like this could be the thing where like I, I could just sort of sense in the ether. Like if I do this well, it may lead to something. And I think they were pleasantly surprised when I churned out these like self-contained pieces of writing that were almost like essays about what it's like to be an NBA player slash NBA bench warmer. And then that led to, I, I can remember them being, because it was successful. And they were like, well, would you do this for the playoffs too? Like, sure, whatever. Okay. And it's, it's, I think it's worth emphasizing, you know, as we have this conversation in 2018, the idea of a player writing a blog during the season doesn't sound that odd. No. In yeah. 2005, it was downright bizarre. Yeah. You know, in, in 2018, it's almost become de rigueur for athletes to be publishing on the Players Tribune or uninterrupted. Right. And right. I think, you know, social media was perhaps the, the proto, mm-hmm. you know, journalism for mm-hmm. essays and uh, for athletes to have a voice. But really, when I, I look back and pull back, a lot of it was you. I don't, you may have been kind of the first player slash writer. There were certainly mm-hmm. players who had retired as was your plan and then write a book. Right, right. But like you were an active player mm-hmm. and an active writer. That was very odd. And you yeah, it was pretty strange. And again, I think it would be easy from an ego standpoint to think like, well, that was really smart of me. But in reality, it was because it was smart of the Suns website team to be like, oh, we can see where you know, what we have access to. Let's see where this goes. What's, what is, I think, it, when we talk about like retrospectively looking at one's life, part of the reason I did it and agreed to do it was I thought, oh, this will be a value add to my career because if you're going to have a guy who's not playing, you might as well have a guy who's entertaining and who can like drive some traffic your way, get some kind of fans that maybe slightly different. How did that assumption play out with regards to your basketball playing career? Poorly. (laughs) Very poorly. After my book came out or when it was in the works, my agent said, dude, these teams do not want to sign you because nobody wants their secrets told. Now, it should be mentioned that like it wasn't like I was a game-changing level NBA player. So this wasn't like a crazy thing for anyone to say. It was more just teams are very risk averse. And so I think I was risky for your 11th, 10th, 11th, 12th guy, you're like, well, I would rather just take the safe bet, which I think was kind of strange because I thought I really did truly think not only would this be kind of fun, but this might be the thing that helps me stay in the NBA. Because if you're going to have nine guys who are kind of the same and then three or four guys at the end of your bench, you might as well have one guy who might bring in an extra hundred fans just because they're like, well, I read this guy's stuff and he's kind of funny. Right. You're creating the behind the scenes written documentary. Yeah, exactly. Kind of peek inside to what's happening. But they, the teams, it sounded like, viewed you more as a mole. Who yeah, made- yeah. Right. Which was strange because I had also made it a point not to throw people under the proverbial bus because I knew that that would like cause some problems. I got the sense that people didn't quite know what to make of it, even though the Suns had this, you know, 
very, it sounds like very smart and ahead of their time digital team who encouraged mm-hmm. it. The rest of the country seemed like they didn't quite know what to make of it. And they called you, you know, NBA funny man. And I mean, you're right, right. a humorous guy and there was certainly humor. I read a few of those and it wasn't like a stand-up comedy routine. It right. was a fairly like earnest and self-aware account of what was happening and what your right. experience was like. How much of it was that you think people just didn't want to see someone wearing their jersey do anything other than shoot a ball? Yeah, I, th- I think that's a, a tendency we all have, which is to assume probably wrongly that like if somebody's good at one thing, they can't be also good at another thing. People just have a really hard time seeing athletes as also something else. And I think that's partially, part of that is we are all kind of lazy and we don't want to believe like, well, if I had just worked a little harder, then maybe I could have done mm-hmm. this other thing, which is a whole other conversation. I think it is it is difficult, like you said, you mentioned earlier, to view it through today's lens. There's a baseball player named Logan Morrison who plays now for the Minnesota Twins who had a really great Twitter feed for a while. And eventually he kind of shut it down because it the owners or whomever were so convinced that it was a distraction. Even though I think like that's kind of bizarre. Like you can only think about your sport for so many hours every day, right? It's not inconceivable that you might also be able to tweet. It's it's a really strange phenomenon that I agree with you. I've seen and when I was playing uh, professionally in Germany, the owners of the team caught wind that I had a girlfriend mm-hmm. and they were convinced that it was going to be the demise of my performance as a starter on the team. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, what do you prefer for me to be out at the clubs chasing girls every night like the rest of my team? Right, right. Like, how yeah. is this a detraction? Yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah, it's it's really hard to understand. I guess it's just that we're all of everyone's assholes get tight when money's on the line. And I think they're trying to think like, well, what's the greatest number of things I can control mm. uh, of my employees? Um, I got in trouble in Spain one time because I was flying to, I was in Menorca, which is an island. So I had to fly to Barcelona to see my then girlfriend. And they tried to ban me from leaving the island. <laughs> I was like, that's like jail. You can't, you can't just like ban me from flying places. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's like treating Menorca like it's Alcatraz. <laughs> right. So I had to like sneak to the airport and like come up with some duplicitous way. And then I would fly back early in the mornings on Monday to try to make it back in time for practice. And yeah, I think that also, as you can, I think that's part of why I'm, I just am so fed up with basketball. Like it's, it's, it's great that I did it, but I don't watch it. I don't think about it. I don't, I like to talk about it that much, partially because it became such a burnout situation of everyone just trying to like grind you down constantly into this like automaton. Yeah, treating you like an asset, not yeah, a human. Yeah, yeah. Really, exactly. if, you, if you really boil it yeah, down. Yeah, I, I mean, again, I think I can, we can all understand that. It's just that it's not that fun when you're in the middle of it. Totally. So when, you know, you mentioned that the grand press release of, mm-hmm. you know, in many people's minds of the, you know, the Michael Jordan retirement announcement does not happen for most people. No. Um, and the the end sort of tapers off for you or did taper off for you. When did you know, like really know and decide this is over? I had gotten an offer to play in Italy 
And I had a girlfriend then who lived in Brooklyn and we were going to, she was like, sure. She was a musician who had just kind of quit what she was doing actually. And so I was like, do you want to go live in Italy for the year? And she said, sure. So we made plans to, I was, I had to go to like Denver to do some speaking thing. And then we were going to fly to Italy. And then the whole contract just came apart. Like I'd already signed the thing and then it just fell apart. As, as you know, in Europe, a lot of those contracts can be a little questionable. Um, but I had had a lot of like reassurance. I was old enough now to sort of build that in and had had enough reassurance where I thought like, oh, I can rely on this. And so when that crumbled, I think that was the moment where I was like, this, uh, this is the end. I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm not going to put myself or people around me through this. And so that I had one last ankle surgery. I'd, I had broken my ankle, as I mentioned, like two years before that. So I had like my third ankle surgery, continued to train in a sort of like, well, you know, if the right thing came up, then maybe. But I think that was the sort of straw was that just sense of like, again, with this like unreliability, I can't, I'm 32 years old. I cannot be having this level of like unpredictability. Who was the first person you told? See, that's the thing. I don't think I ever told anybody. Did you, do you remember uh, like I'm done? I do because I had a kind of a fork in the road moment where I was going to either continue playing basketball Mm -hmm. or uh, go do a, a web startup. Right, And so it was clear to me that if I chose the web startup path, which Mm -hmm. I did, Mm -hmm. that that was truly closing the basketball door or at least in my mind. So for me, there was a moment where I like really decided. Yeah. 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 I think I I had, had had a weird, obviously I'd had a weird career, but one of the other weird aspects of it was that I was already writing. So I'd already, my book, my first book had already come out. As my career was winding down, I was already writing for ESPN about my career and then about music. And I was writing for El Pais, which is a Spanish newspaper about the NBA every week, even while I was still playing. So I could kind of weave in and out mm. in a way. Like I, I remember going to Malaga, Spain with uh, the girl from Barcelona, actually. And she or I had to go to the hospital for some reason. And this kid looked at me. He's like, hey, uh, you're Paul Shirley. Like all of this in Spanish. And I said, yeah. And I assumed that he had seen that I had just signed for the team. And I was asking him about that. And he's like, no, no, you're my favorite columnist for El Pais. <laughs> and I was like, really? I thought, because at the time I thought I was just writing for the online presence. Mm. El Pais is like the New York Times of Spain. It's the biggest newspaper in Spain. And so he's like, no, no, you're, you have a, your column is in the paper. And he showed it to me. And like my little face, like the little New York Times drawing was just in the newspaper. <laughs> so I was already like a journalist in Spain when I started playing for my third team there. So I I had this strange like muddling of careers already going. Yeah, I think that's actually what you did Mm -hmm. could be quite a helpful uh, transition strategy, which is that you diversified your identity. Right. You you had two things going. So, you know, I think when people's entire identity is wrapped up as one singular thing, right? that's hard to let all that go. And suddenly you're kind of floating. You did have this diversified identity as, yes, a professional basketball player, but also a, a, a professional writer. Yeah, I think I'm actually really grateful that I wasn't more successful as a basketball player than I was because I think that makes it really hard to move on. Mm. It's a little bit easier when you're like, well, yeah, I played, but I wasn't you know, great. And I also didn't make nearly enough money <laughs> to just sit around. So... That makes it 
a little bit more palatable, I think. Yeah, you had the um, kind of the world was a motivator. You knew you were right, going to have yeah, to yeah. reinvent yourself in some way. All that said, though, I understand that uh, moving on from basketball was difficult for you in some ways. Yeah, certainly. I I did like I don't know if it was two years solid, but for a long period of time, I was going. I was doing therapy twice a week in Kansas City. I I'd been warned by other people that like you're going to need, you're going to go through like two years of depression when this is all done. And they were right. Like it was tough to, even though, even though I, like you said, I, I tried to balance my identity and I thought like, well, I'm a smart guy. I'm not going to have to deal with that. It was pretty crushing. The analogy that my therapist came up with was that it was a lot like if I had retired from selling insurance for 40 years at age 65. It's just that I was going through that at 32 or 33 and I think what's tricky about that is that you feel very virile and effective still, but this thing that you've done since you were 15 is now gone. Right. I think your former teammate, Steve Nash, described it as a death in the family. Yeah. Yeah. And going did, through that. Yeah, it did feel that way. And I think it's, it's difficult for people, again, to understand. Were there particular aspects that were most difficult for you? Um, well... I think it it is truly just the loss of identity, not knowing like who you are. I think I don't know that this is a good generalization, but I think men especially have to fight that. Like we really connect to what we do as who we are. And I've had to guard against that in my post-basketball career because I know I'm very prone to it. Uh, I, I've seen how it can let you down if you allow that to consume you. But I really was, I took a lot of pride in I'm really good at this thing. There are only probably, whatever, 300 people in the world who can do it better than I can. Um, and it was like, it's just a, a big ego boost that you need to come to terms with. Mm -hmm. Well, good for you for, for putting in the work. Um, and I'm a big believer in therapy as well. And I've done a lot of it at different points in my life. And, and personal growth work, I think, is so, so helpful. Sort of thinking about like, I'm my own most valuable asset and I want to invest in myself to navigate. Different yeah, situations. for sure. I mean, the, the reason that we're going to run up against the time here is I have to go to therapy. <laughs> I'm not joking. Like that's, I have an appointment to see my therapist who I see once a month. It has become much more about like strategic planning in a way. Like there might be some talk of what's going on, you know, emotionally, but a lot of it is more just like, let's, let's be more efficient about, you know, how you're kind of running your life. I love it. So at that point when you were 34, how did you think about your your big jump? You had a somewhat diversified identity in that you had traction as a writer mm -hmm. while you had traction as a basketball player. Mm -hmm. How did you approach moving forward from that point? So I was writing for ESPN about music each week, for El País about the NBA. Like I already knew I don't want to just write about sports and music for the rest of my life. And in the meantime, I was writing this book my first book did well enough that like I wasn't I didn't get rich from it, but I got a nice little advance and it sold about as many copies as they thought it would. And so I thought like, well, I'll just write a second book and then that'll just be the way. This was can I keep my jersey? Right. So I I spent about three years working on a novel that was um kind of gonna be my follow-up. Um it was very autobiographical. But I was diving into fiction. I, I sent it off to my agent. By now, I had moved to LA. 
And he said, oh, actually, I really like this. I'm going to take it out to publishers. So he took it to 12 publishers. They all said no. And then I was like, well, I'm determined to get this into the world. So I'm going to have it edited by someone else and then I'll self-publish it or something. So I sent it off to this friend of mine to edit. And uh, about six weeks later, I got her email back in a coffee shop on Venice Boulevard. And in her email, she said, Paul, I... You know, I'm, I'd be happy to spend more time with this, but the truth is, I don't think this has it. It's just neither an autobiography nor a novel, and I think you should consider just moving on from it. And like you're saying, Ouch. that was that moment where I was like, "Oh, this isn't good." And and so, you know, you've spent three years just pounding away on this book. Um, so, what do you do? Was there perhaps a parallel moment from? from sports or an ability that you think you you had gained that helped you get through that moment? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think, I think that's an astute observation. Um, having been cut so many times by teams, um, having been hurt so many times, having just like whatever lost games enough times, uh, like we all do as athletes, I think that allowed me, thankfully, to not A, blame other people or B, get too down on myself. Like I was hurt. I was, you know, I like started crying in that coffee shop, but I was able to recover pretty quickly. And my recovery was, oh shit, I'm not working hard enough at this. Like I used to work this hard at sports. Mm. Now with writing, I, I think I thought like, oh, well, you know, I kind of do it when I want and I'm, I'm going to work at it a little bit. But I'd been granted this great uh, head start because I was an athlete and people wanted to hear what I was saying. They didn't necessarily care. They cared some about the quality of the writing, but they mostly cared like, well, he's in the NBA and it's like just inherently interesting. So I had the kind of this like dark night of the soul, as I say in screenwriting, where I just decided like, I'm not, I'm just not trying hard enough. And that's where, that's when I uh, really committed to writer's block, the writing community. I had started that already, but it was like just in very nascent stages but more importantly, I committed to this idea of writing for an hour a day. And I got that from like books I'd read, but also kind of from my own background of basketball. Like, you know how it is with sports. You, you decide on a routine and you commit to that and you tweak it based on like, well, it's, I'm, maybe I'm doing a slightly too much or slightly too little or whatever it is. But since then, I have written one book that's out there's um, the fourth draft of another book is done. The third draft of yet another book is done. So the results have kind of borne out on their own. Just that like, if you commit to something like that, go sort of full throttle on it and commit to doing it every day, then results follow. I want to emphasize what you're saying and reflect some of it back to you. I think it's really powerful what you did in a moment where three years of your work were met with rejection. One, you took personal responsibility for the situation and said, shoot, I'm not working hard enough. Mm-hmm. Not they're all wrong and idiots and like, you know, these publishers don't know what they're talking yeah, about. Or, there was right? that. I mean, there was that I'm temptation sure. to think that. that I mean, like, I'm, not, I'm not like a saint. So I was like, what? This hurts. Must be somebody else. Like, of course. But you didn't, you didn't end up there. You know, you didn't, um, you're not still talking about the ref who blew the call, essentially, right? right? You, you brought it back to yourself and what can I do? Um, and then you lean back on your sports training and mm-hmm. what worked there? Routine, discipline, 
putting in the work, putting in the work when it didn't feel like it. Right. And you're seeing that those sort of daily repetitions and turning it into a practice of sorts, mm-hmm. uh, you've now been seeing results from that. Yeah. And it's like, it's, it's really, I think the, the problem with it is it's so simple yet so difficult to express to people sometimes. Um, I see that with writers a lot where they're in the phase I was in where they just want it to be fun and they want it to like just kind of be easy. But what I think they don't see sometimes is like it can be easy once you've committed to that routine, that regularity, just like working out or yoga or, or playing a sport. But sometimes we mystify it to keep people away Almost like I always, I I talk about this where when I was a kid, I always hated going to basketball camps where the like local college guy would come in and he would say, well, you know, uh, the, the, the head of the camp would be like, well, you know, what's your routine in the summertime? And he'd say something like, well, you know, I shoot a thousand shots a day. And I, as a 15 year old who would like work out or spend so much time on the court that it was like insane. I was the prototypical gym rat. I was like, I can't shoot a thousand shots a day. Like your arms would fall off. Like that's three and a half hours. It would take you three and a half hours of shooting. So am I like, I'm going to, I'm not going to be able to do this because this guy is saying something that seems so, so it turns out maybe one time in that guy's life, he shot a thousand shots or he's shot a thousand shots a week and he's just sort of exaggerating. But I think some of it is like, when you're in a thing, you want to keep people out of that thing. You don't want to show them how it's, possible to do that you want to make it seem impossible because that boosts your own ego and it's kind of exclusionary so i think that's one of the problems with with all of these things whether it's writing or working out or whatever there's a tendency to say to pat yourself on the back and say like well i'm working really hard and i'm not sure you have what it takes and i think one thing that i want to always be able to express to people is like yes this is challenging but it's not difficult necessarily. It's just a matter of like doing it, finding a way, you know, whether it's a workout buddy or a writing buddy or or a writing workshop or whatever it is to commit to that and then just doing it. But it's, so it's not, it's not easy, but it also doesn't have to be like completely intimidating. My understanding of your current pursuit writer's block Mm -hmm. is somewhat based around that idea uh, of, of commitment and creating kind of group support or team right. uh, around writing. We're, we're currently sitting in the new space. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. And uh, describe kind of how the model works. So we term it in two ways. One is that it's like a co-working space for writers. That makes sense to certain people. Um, the other is that it's like a yoga studio or a gym for writers in that you could do yoga or you could work out at home, but it's a lot easier to do it around other people. The the co-working model is a little I think it's it's a mishmash of the two because we don't we're not really encouraging people to come and sit for the whole day. We run sessions just like a yoga studio would. Um, people come in either for an hour at a time or for a longer session which is 2 hours of writing plus 30 minutes of small group uh, breakout sessions. How did this come to be? As with uh, all the things we've been discussing, it's easy to look back and be like, well, I just just started it and now it's this looks like this. Um, but the answer is it it evolved with me understanding like what people wanted, what people needed. It started with me saying, a friend of mine was talking about how like 
he's like, it's kind of crazy that there's this guy who organizes dodgeball games on the beach and like people just come. And I feel like with writing, something could be similar where, you know, if you just organize it, then people might be into it. So I was like, all right, let's give it a shot and talked to a friend of mine who ran a sandwich shop, said, could we get in there at night when you guys are not open? And I started a meetup page and put out some posters in, on Venice Boulevard in that weirdly same coffee shop where I got that terrible news and just like put out the donations box and some wine and try to figure out like, do some other people want to come right in a place where they know they're wanted? A lot of times I spend a lot of time writing in coffee shops, but I'm sure you do a bit of working in coffee shops. You never really know how long they want you to be there. Because they're kind of staring over your shoulder like, why don't you buy some more, you asshole? Uh, <laughs> so I kind of wanted to just create a place where people knew you're wanted here. There's going to be other people here who are like happy to see you and who, you know, at a very basic level from a very functional place of just like give people a, a space to work. And the camaraderie of other people are doing the same activity yeah. that you're doing as well. Right. Which I think was was the next step was expressing that because I knew that or I understood that pretty clearly, but some people don't get that. So it took a while for me to be able to say like, it's just easier to write or to work around other people. So that was inherent to you and your understanding from sports, Mm -hmm. but other people who perhaps had not had that experience didn't realize sort of the lift you get. Right. They were like, well, I can just write at my house. (laughs) And you're like, well, great, you can. But I, f- I have this feeling that if you come somewhere where other people are writing, you're just going to A, feel better about yourself, but B, you're going to be more motivated because as we all know, like it's the same with finding a workout partner. We talked about this the other day. It's not like one plus one equals two. It's one plus one equals four or something. And I think that that became clear to people pretty quickly. They're like, I don't know what it is, but it's sort of magical that all these people are. And you're like, well, it's not, I haven't put anything in the diffuser. It's just that this happens to people. Mm-hmm. When we opened the new home for writer's block, a couple of people came to me and said, I had no idea you had such grand designs when you started this thing. Because when I started writer's block, I didn't have any illusions where I was just like, let's see what happens. And so seeing it all come together and knowing how much time and energy we've put into this place, like it's, it's been so gratifying and additionally like i've been the happiest i've been in the last like two months just because of the forward momentum of building this thing well coming from a guy who loves design you've done a great job i didn't i didn't see all the work that went into it but it's it's bright and airy and kind of scandinavian meets california cool thanks man that's kind of what we were going for we talked a lot about like well it's sort of like minimalist meets industrial meets homey (laughs) You've done it. It's a a comfortable spot. We think of this as like a little bit of a home away from home. A guy came in last night and was like, I already like being here more than at my house. And that's gratifying because I think everyone, writers, athletes, whatever, needs to have a home. You you can remember what it's like. If you go to a a a team's locker room that you really love, Hmm. so comforting. Like when I played for the Phoenix Suns, they had such a great organization at the time. And I really looked forward to getting there because it was, you felt sort of cared for. People wanted you to be there. Um, I can remember other places, the Russian team I played for, where I didn't feel that way. And so we want to cultivate that sense of, oh man, I have a place where I belong. They want me to be there. They've got the water with the cucumbers in it to make me feel a little special. They've got the good coffee. Um, and while I'm there, I might as well be productive and get some writing done. Yeah. My perception of writing is that it could be a very lonely pursuit. So Mm -hmm. 
it seems what you're doing is you're creating your own, as you just said, your own locker room or your own team right? Um, to eliminate some of that loneliness and increase camaraderie, but also productivity uh, in the yeah, sessions. And also to help people find um, like just advocates in that. I think there's a tendency among writers to think that it's a zero sum game, like that there's only so many books that can be posted. And that to some degree is true, but it's, it's such a vast zero sum game that we can all form little communities and then work within those and help each other. So I have a question related to writing and this growing phenomenon of players writing more about their own experience while they're a player. Okay. Uh, so I've noticed that it seems like you get a little bit of a thrill out of sort of towing the line and sometimes stepping over it. Um, sure. And, you know, even in our conversation today, our example of, you know, the one path versus the other, like mm-hmm. one of the examples was, well, you could go sell a kilo of heroin. <laughs> So when you know, and you're aware enough guy that you know, some of the things you're going to say are going to get a rise out of people. How do you think about when to kind of get a a rise out of people and cross a potential line versus when you hold back? That is a tricky balance because of especially the times we live in where everything is recorded and everything is like permanent. I think I know from storytelling i my writing style people and this is both a compliment and an insult people will say man you write just like you talk which i think is everyone should uh, try for that you know you Mm. should try to be the most genuine that you can on the page and so i think the way that i write is the way that i just tell stories and what i've noticed about telling stories is that you have to keep people's attention um when i do speeches, I actually just, I've been doing these um, storytelling competitions recently. I've noticed that like, it's really not about being funny. It's about being vulnerable. And sometimes when you're vulnerable, you're going to say things that like you weren't thinking about ahead of time. It just comes out. Um, But I also have this desire to make people laugh. And so it's my tendency to like have this dark sense of humor anyway. And so that's going to come out. In sort of these moments of to share or not to share, right. which is the current you know question yeah, yeah. that I think people people face a lot. Was there a time ever where you shared and you wish you could have had that one back? And, and maybe what did you learn from a moment like that? I think so. Like I got into a lot of trouble for writing this piece about the uh, aftermath of the Haiti earthquake. Just for a tiny bit of context, what 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 happened with it? So it was when I was, I mentioned that I was writing for ESPN, El Pais, and then for Flip Collective, which is a website that I was running. And on Flip Collective, I would write about current events. The earthquake happened in, in Haiti and I sat there and watched like my friends and people around me sending texts to donate their $10 to the earthquake relief, right? And I was like, I think they're they're just enjoying the feeling of donating without thinking about like where the money's going or like what are the repercussions of doing this. It was more, it's, I mean, people talk about this all the time, the sort of like slacktivism or, you know, like a, a, a Facebook warrior who doesn't actually accomplish anything, right? So I wanted to piss those people off. I wanted to make them think about like, well, what if this has the an unintended consequence of like, what if it does harm? You know, what if just dumping money into the situation doesn't do any good, but actually does the opposite. So I wrote this column where I basically said like, I'm not going to donate any money to this 
relief fund. And here's why, like we should make sure that this is going to go to the right place. And also what if, and this is the big one, what if this is actually doing, as I mentioned, the opposite in the same way that like, if you saw a a chick hatching from an egg, your temptation is like to help the chick, right? But we know it's common knowledge that if you help the chick, it doesn't develop the strength to get out of the egg and it dies. So you've actually done the opposite of what you intended to do. And so this really, uh, pissed people off. And it went a lot further than I expected. I, at the time, Flip Collective... Because you're you're essentially saying, don't donate to Haiti at a time when everyone wanted to donate to Haiti. Well, yeah. I was saying, why don't you think about it before you do? Make sure that this is the right place to send your money because there's finite resources. There's not like... Unfortunately, we can't help everybody. We have to decide like, this is is where the money goes, etc. I also felt like and this, this maybe, I think this was hard for people to see, but I think that some of that is a little condescending to be like, well, let me come help you, poor person who can't help himself. Um, so I was, yes, I was saying like, you're, it seems like you're being kind of condescending here. And there's a chance that this isn't going to do any good. And how does that make you feel? And the answer was it made people feel bad because <laughs> they don't want that cognitive dissonance, right? Like they don't want to think, well, I've done this thing that was supposed to be good and now it could be bad. <laughs> Um, and so it, it snowballed really quickly. Um, at the time, each piece on Flip Collective would get like 2,000 page views. Our goal was not necessarily page views. It was mostly just like getting the, the words out there. And so I thought, oh, you know, I know this will be a little provocative. So it'll go to 4,000 or 5,000 because it's going to be a little like it it'll, might raise some ruffle some feathers. But the next day, it was seen by like 125,000 people. And then it started making the rounds on ESPN. Like, because I was, I hadn't written it on ESPN, but people knew I wrote for ESPN. And so people were calling for my head at ESPN, like, this guy should be fired, et cetera, et cetera, which was, which was particularly strange for me because I was like, guys, I'm not in charge of the Haitian earthquake relief. I'm just trying to make people think about this really and truly. Um, And then at, I think as we could imagine, ESPN fired me. They didn't technically fire me because I was just a freelance contributor, Mm. Um, but they like parted ways with me in a very public way, which I think only added fuel to the fire because then people were like, see, I told you he was bad. Now ESPN (laughs) agrees. And so then that led to just a kind of a firestorm of people figuring, like trying to figure out like, was I an evil person? That just led to a lot of turmoil. And I think that would be the one example of something where I certainly didn't plan on those things occurring, but I don't know that I would take it back. It had a lot of effect on my life. Still, people will, you know, bring that up. Like if you you search my name, that's one of the first things that comes up. Um, A lot of times they will not bay as like some weird dark underground world, but people will find certain bits of the article that are taken kind of out of context. And again, the context is, is what I said. I mean, I was saying like, I'm not sure this is a great idea. I'm not sure this is going to go very well. I think that that might be that example of like, would I have lived a different life if I had never written that? Yeah. Truth is, I was always going to write something that was going to piss people off. I've always written things that have pissed people off. And uh, if it wasn't that, it was going to be something else. So that was my chance to learn a lot from the experience. and. I did. I don't, I don't think I learned like keep your mouth shut necessarily, but I learned if you're going to dive into uh, controversial stuff, make sure you know what you're talking about. Like one of the problems was I was sort of going off half cocked. I'm not an 
expert on aid to foreign countries or mm. on earthquakes. So I maybe probably shouldn't have been writing about it at all just because I don't know that much about it. Mm. But if you are going to dive into those things, make sure they're in a book and make sure that they are in a way that is kind of like you can control sort of how it ends up. If that Does that make sense? It does. It's really interesting. I think that's helpful advice. So you're not saying um, or suggesting for people to hold back or hold their tongue or be wary of crossing a line and you clearly in the eyes of the general public crossed a line. Right. Um, but your, your takeaway is don't be fearful of the line. Make sure you have credibility mm-hmm. in the types of things you're going to discuss. Yeah, exactly. I think like now I, there are things that are going on now that I would love to comment on or write about, but I think my response to myself is always like, just build more credibility Get, get more wisdom and age behind you before you start really going off. I mean, I, it turned out I was right, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I had the credibility to talk about what I was talking about or write about what I was writing about. I do think that we should, as a society, be a little more open to dissenting voices. I, I love, you know, dissenting voices. There's a French writer, uh, Hulebeck. I don't know if you've heard of this guy. It's just a great like French attitude toward authority figures and toward thinking that I really admire. And I think in the US, we lose out on that. We don't have a ton of those people because if, if we do, they're either left wing or they're right wing. They're not really seen as just, well, he's just a thinker. He just thinks about things and, and he pushes our buttons sometimes, but he's not doing it just to push our buttons. It just happens to be that he disagrees. Right. Where in the US, it turns into a morality judgment. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I think like that's the thing that I kept going back to with the Haiti thing was like, guys, all right, you don't like it. Just don't read it. And I'm not president. Like, it's fine if you disagree with me. You're going to, if I've written, I mean, I don't know how many things I've written that have appeared in the public eye, but it's probably on the order of almost, if you, two books that are 100,000 words each, plus just almost innumerable columns. So like a million words that are available for public consumption. If you don't agree with 2,000 of the million, fine. That's great. But there's another 998,000 out there that you might enjoy or might get you thinking. I just think it's interesting that we, and we see this all the time with people who like toss off a, a tweet that people don't like or whatever. And they forget the just context in the sense of this person has done all of these other things. Like, uh, Take it with a proverbial grain of salt, you know? Mm. If you could wake up tomorrow with one new ability, what would that ability be? Oh, let's see. One new ability. Um, I I think it would be if I could sleep less, that would be great. (laughs) Do you think big guys need to sleep more? I do. Yeah. I do. I would like to see um, if there's a scientist listening to this. Mm-hmm. Who could I, just tell us. Who could do a study. Right. Um, I will participate. Yeah. I'm not saying I want to be able to sleep like three hours a night, but I really don't do that well with fewer than like seven or seven and a half hours of sleep. Yeah. I'm the same way. And I think the ideal is actually more like eight, nine. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I do think there is something to like size of human needs Mm -hmm. more time to recuperate. Right. I think there's there's a correlation there. There's more cells that need to be regenerated. So (laughs) it makes some sense. So, I mean, yeah, that sounds kind of trite and it also sounds like something that a workaholic would say, but I really, (laughs) I really do just kind of envy people who are like, oh yeah, I just need like six hours of sleep. Like, oh, 
Uh, yeah. <laughs> not me. I've got a, a final question for you. What advice would you give to freshman year of college, Paul? Oh, man. Um, I think it would be... So my tendency was always to um, overwork out of fear that I wasn't doing enough. When I was in college, I was a very studious and dedicated college athlete in that I was getting a degree in mechanical engineering and playing basketball, which meant that I didn't have any time for anything else. So I didn't drink. I didn't go out. And that continued into... I really didn't have a drink until I was 27. So one of the things that uh, cropped up when I stopped playing was like, oh man, everybody else has been living lives and I haven't at all. So I think my advice to him would be to relax a little bit and come up with some coping strategies for anxiety and or worry. Then I think I have eventually done that, but I think I think I'm prone to um, that uh, just catastrophizing and or uh, being anxious about things I can't control. Uh, I think a lot of people that we are around, probably a lot of people listening to this podcast are similar to that. And it has taken me a long time to figure out how to manage that. It it definitely was not helpful to my basketball career. It was helpful up to a point. Like It meant that I worked a lot harder than a lot of people I was around. But it also meant that I had a hard time sort of letting go and just being in the moment and trusting that like, you know, I've, I've practiced shooting whatever. Uh, it's 800,000 times. If I miss this next shot, that doesn't mean that, that I'm going to miss all of my shots from here on out, right? And I think I still fight that a little bit, just like knowing I can probably cope with things. I'll probably be okay. Most of the evidence suggests that, but I have a tendency to over worry or to like kind of preset for those things. Do you go through that at all? Um, I do. I think you're like, nope. Yeah, no, sorry, dude. Don't identify (laughs) with you. Um, I do. I think, uh, learning to let go and, um, what is it? The, you're the music guy. Was it the cars hang on loosely? Um, I think is, is is good medicine for me. Yeah. I think that's 38 special hold on loosely. I don't know. (laughs) I'm going with you on this one. Um, but it's, it's great perspective, um, to find that balance between kind of working hard and knowing when you've done enough and Mm -hmm. to kind of let the game come to you as it were. Right. Yeah, exactly. I I've always thought about that. Weirdly. I, I think about that with dating. Uh, in that I th- when you're when you're playing a great basketball game, you are just responding to the moment. You're not thinking, I need to go score 15 points. You're thinking, when the opportunities arise, I will just go with it. Well, it's back to the story of um, of your your uncle, your earliest memory playing sports, mm-hmm. yeah. where you stepped up to the plate trying to hit a home run, right. and it turns out that's not the way to hit a home run. Yeah, exactly. The way to hit a home run is to practice hitting yeah. in the form and, sure. and you know swinging to make contact and the home run happens totally swinging I mean, true you probably have seen this with um with public speaking i think that's a big tendency is to think like i have to impress these people instead of and that doesn't work it never works what works is be in the moment tell the story you came to set up you you set out to tell and they'll probably come along they might not but they probably will yeah. um and i think that that that's just an example that's valid for most of the things we do. Yeah. Well, Paul, I thank you for 
being in the moment with me and sharing so much of yourself. I admire your vulnerability and also the way in which you've leveraged your athletic mind for success beyond sports and really built on your athletic past to reinvent yourself into a successful writer and also the founder of this wonderful space, Writer's Block. So thanks so much for making yourself available. And I really enjoyed the conversation and learned a lot from you. Me too. I'm, I'm excited about what you're doing because uh, it, it is nice to be able to verbalize or articulate this idea that, that there's worth or validity in sports beyond just the sports themselves, that it's a thing that can set you up for success later down the road. It's interesting that athletes, especially professional athletes, have gotten a, a rap as being partiers or unreliable when in fact, in order to do it at that high level, you have to be like hyper reliable and extremely diligent about routine and regularity. And so in the same way that if I were running a company and I were looking for whatever, a manager, I would love to hire like an ex-Marine. I probably would also love to hire an ex-athlete because I know, oh, he or she knows to show up on time and they can do the same thing kind of over and over again and know that it just has to be 1% better every day. It's not about like, there's no, there's no magic bullet here. It's just showing up doing it day after day after day i like i think there's so much benefit to that that we just don't talk about enough oh thank you awesome paul thanks so much man you feel like a teammate no thank you (laughs) give the big jump a holler on instagram or twitter at big jump show on the podcast chart season one netted a perfect five-star rating for the big jump and if you're so inclined i would be grateful if you could show some love by throwing us five stars and if this is your first episode don't forget to subscribe And show notes, get your show notes here. If you're listening while driving or are sharpening knives underwater, show notes for this episode and links to everything mentioned can be found at thebigjumpshow.com. Also, when I need a change of pace from podcasts, I love listening to audiobooks on Audible. After hearing this episode, I have a feeling that you're going to want to listen to Paul Shirley's latest book, Stories I Tell on Dates. So I've partnered up with Audible to give new customers a free audiobook. Just go to thebigjumpshow.com slash audiobook to get Paul Shirley's new book for free or choose from one of Audible's other 180,000 titles. Sorry, Paul. Again, to start off your Audible account with a free audiobook, go to thebigjumpshow.com slash audiobook. And lastly, I want to say thank you to our sponsor, Grand Voyage, a luxury fashion brand and a personal favorite of mine that makes shoes and bags designed in LA and handcrafted in Italy at the same factories as other premier fashion labels, but at a much better value. GQ says they're, quote, changing the fashion game. And Grand Voyage is perfect if you're trying to change up your fashion game. And by change up, I do mean upgrade. Use the promo code THEBIGJUMP for $35 off the beautiful bags and shoes from Grand Voyage. Yes, $35 off. Go check them out. See what I mean by going to thebigjumpshow.com slash shoes. And from there, as they say, the rest is up to you.